0: All right, if you guys will turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me remind you, for those of you who've been here for a while, you know that Easter is approaching, and when Easter comes, it's time for us at Southwood to do our Easter extravaganza. We do this event every year around Easter time. It's our primary outreach event of the year. So for those of you who who don't have any idea what this is, um, we are blessed as a church to be in the middle of a neighborhood. And so we decided, why don't we have an event once a year where we invite all the families, whether they go to this church or not, who live in these neighborhoods around us, to come here, have free food, play games with their kids, and hear the gospel. Find out what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've seen this event work in amazing ways in people's lives in the last few years. Families who didn't know the Lord or were not plugged into a church come to belong here and to participate in the family of Grace Bible Church through this Easter outreach. So let me first and foremost ask you guys if you will begin to pray for Easter here at Grace Bible Church. This is, uh, statistically speaking, one of the primary times of the year that God uses to reach unbelievers with the gospel. Because it's Easter. It's the good news. It's the good news that Jesus died and rose for us. So please pray that God would use this Easter season to reach hundreds of families with the gospel and Bryan and College Station. Now, we would love to have you participate with us, uh, adults, students, high schoolers, junior highers, everyone, any of you who would like to help us to pull off this Easter outreach. We have a little form in your bulletin that says extravaganza at the top. Lots of things that you can do the night of the event, April 5th, that evening, to help us out to reach these families. If you're willing, we'd love to have you participate with us in the Easter extravaganza. Now, this morning, Romans 8, 28 through 30, i are only looking at three verses this morning. They are all about security. Security is a pretty important thing in this day and age. When I was a junior higher, I was, uh, participated a lot in my uh, junior high youth group at church. Now, for some odd reason, when I was in junior high, among the guys in our youth group, um, it became the thing to do to, to dogpile a guy if you want to show him respect. So um, if you want to show that you care about a guy, you should get all of your friends to jump on top of him. That is how we showed that we love one another. Well, one morning at church, Sunday morning, the guys decided it was time to care about Blake. And so um, one guy flattened me out and the rest jumped on top of me. Now, my problem was in junior high, I was tiny smallest guy in the youth group. And so you put five guys on top of me and I'm gonna start having a hard time breathing. But the worst was the last guy. He decided to take a running start to get on top of that dog pile. Unfortunately, he missed and he came down full force on my face and he was wearing Doc Martens. Now, you get kicked in the face with a Doc Martin and your life is going badly. It hurt really bad. And so at that moment, as my head is ringing from that kick and my breath is leaving me, I feel like I can't breathe. I begin to panic. No longer is this a prank. It's certainly not a sign of respect. I begin to fear that I'm just gonna suffocate under this pile of guys. And so, uh, with my last breath, with my last remaining bit of energy, I throw caution and propriety to the wind and I scream out a vulgar four-letter word. (laughs) Now, not the one that would have gotten me grounded for a month, but the next worst one. You know the one. Now, you scream that word in the middle of church and it gets people's attention. (laughs) All those guys jumped off of me. A few minutes later, I felt really guilty and ashamed, but in the moment, I didn't care. I could have cared less about what people thought of me, about my reputation as a good kid. All I cared about was my security. I felt like my life was in danger. All that I cared about was getting my security back. Security trumped everything else. That's actually human nature. About 70 years ago, a a researcher in psychology, a guy named Abraham Maslow, demonstrated that after we have met our most basic biological needs, like the need for air, water, food, our most pressing need as a human race is the need for security. After your most basic biological needs, that's what you need above all else, to feel safe, to feel secure. In fact, all of your other needs, like your need for love, your need for respect, your need for success, they are all trumped by your need for security. If you don't feel safe, you can't get to those needs. That's actually how God hardwired you. God designed you to crave security. He designed you to need security. Without it, you can't be healthy. Maslow actually concluded, if you go through life without security, after a while, you end up with neurosis or emotional disorders. You can't be a healthy human being without security. That's how God designed you, to need security. God wants you to feel safe and secure. He does not want you living in fear and worry. You need security. Problem is, you live in a very insecure world. We live in a world full of uh, military threats and natural disasters, We live in a world full of incurable diseases and economic collapses. We live in a world characterized by layoffs and and broken marriages, broken relationships. If you are looking for security in this world, you will not find it. There's no amount of money you can save. There is no amount of vitamins and exercise you can take that can give you absolute security. This world is inherently insecure. It cannot give you the security that you crave. If you are seeking security in the things of this world, you will be disappointed. There's only one place to go to find the security that God designed you to crave. You gotta go to God himself. You got to go to the promises of God. Only God is strong enough, has enough power to overcome the dangers and insecurities of life in this fallen world. Only he can give you the security you crave. Only his promises can give you the safety and security in life that you need. Money will fail you people will fail you, careers will fail you, health will fail you. Only God's promises remain. His promises are the only things you can absolutely bank on in this life. So in the passage this morning, Romans 8 from verse 28 to the end of the the book, we are going to look at the promises of God. And in this section of Romans 28 through 39, God reveals to us three promises. Three promises that are designed to give us the security that we crave. Now, at about 6 a.m. this morning, I realized that it was a pipe dream to think that I could get all the way through verse 39. So this morning, we're just going to look at the first two promises. Just in verses 28 through 30, when I'm back with you in two weeks, we'll look at 31 through 39 and get the third promise. This morning, just the first two promises, read with me starting in verse 28. Let's look at these first two promises that God gives us in order to build within us a sense of security. Starting in verse 28. Now, the first promise that God makes to you is found in the first verse, verse 28. God promises to you, I will use everything for your good. That's the point of verse 28. God says to you, I will use everything for your good. Now, to understand that promise, we've got to uh, ask and answer a couple questions about it. First of all, who is that promise made to? To whom does that promise from God apply? Paul gives us two descriptions. First, he says, it applies to those who love God. Now, interestingly, this is the only place in the entire book of Romans where Paul talks about our love for God. Everywhere else, it's God's love for us or our love for one another. This is the only place that talks about our love for God. So it's a little tough for us to know what Paul has in mind here by that phrase. He doesn't use it anywhere else. Does he mean the love that all believers have for God just by virtue of the fact that we believe in him? Or or is he just talking about mature believers who, who show love through obedience? And what is Paul saying about days that I wake up and don't feel a lot of love for God? I feel distant from God. Does the promise still apply to me on those days? Well, if this was the only description, you wouldn't know for sure. So Paul adds a second description. He says this promise applies to all who are called according to his purpose. This one's a lot clearer. We know exactly what Paul means here. Whenever Paul uses the phrase, those who are called, he is always talking about all believers. All believers in a particular geographic location or all believers worldwide. He's talking about all believers. That's what he has in mind here. You, you know that from verse 30. If you look back at verse 30, he says, and these whom he called, same word there, same idea, he also justified. Everyone who has been called is the same group, all of them who have been justified. Remember, that's our key word from chapters three through five. Justified, that means that God declares you at a moment in time to be eternally righteous in his sight. You are in the right in God's eyes. As a result, you will spend eternity with him. If you have been called, then you've been justified. Okay, so, so to be called is to be a believer, is to be, be a person who has been uh, justified by God. This word called, it's about an invitation. That's really the idea in Greek. To be called means that God has invited you by name into his family. That's the idea here. God invited you into his family. As a result of God's invitation, you're in his family. No one who is called fails to show up. Everyone who's called enters God's family. Okay, so those who are called, this promise is for all believers. That's the first question we need to clarify. Second question we got to clarify, really important one. What does good mean? God has promised to every person in this room who is a believer, who is trusted in the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. He has promised to you to work everything for your good. But what does good mean? Now, if you asked most Americans, what does good mean? What, what is a good life? What does that look like? What would they say? Well, it's a life full of happiness and uh, full of success and full of good health and good friends and success at your career and money and wealth and popularity. That's what it means to be good. That's not God's definition, though. God actually gives us his definition of the word good in verse 29. Verse 29, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the definition right there. What God decided for you, when God invited you into his family, what he decided for you, what is good for you, is to be made like his son, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's God's definition of good. If you were to ask God, God, what does it look like for me to live the good life? What is good in my life? God would say, it's to be like Jesus. That's my definition of good. It's not happiness. It's not health. It's not comfort and ease and wealth and fame. It's to become like Jesus. That is the definition of good. So this promise in verse 28, it is not God's promise to work everything for our happiness or ease or comfort or material success. It's God's promise to work everything for our ultimate good. That is becoming like Jesus. Use everything to grow us in the likeness of Christ. Now, uh, let me illustrate what I mean by this. Um, I told many of you a number of weeks ago, uh, f- about three years ago, I lost vision in my right eye. Kind of weird medical thing. Um, I appreciate all of you who've been praying for me. I had surgery a couple weeks ago. It went well. I have another procedure this coming week. After that, they are hoping I'll have vision back in that eye. Um, but let's look at my eye through verse 28. What has God promised me concerning my eye? Has he promised to heal it? Nope. Actually, you can study scripture from cover to cover and you will find God has never made any promise to me to heal my eye. He does not promise to remove my physical ailments. In fact, Paul himself, it would appear, as best we can tell, Paul had some kind of condition, some kind of chronic ailment with his eyes that he prayed, he pleaded, God, fix this, heal me. And God said, no, no, Paul, I'm not gonna do it. God never healed him. Now, God has promised in the next life I'll heal you. This eye, it's going to work once you're resurrected, it's going to work for all eternity. But in the meantime, I have no promise of healing. What has God promised to do with my eye? To use it. To use it to grow me to be more like Jesus. That's the promise I bank on. Whether my eye gets better or not doesn't really matter. Not that important in terms of eternity. What matters is that God is going to use this ailment in my life to grow me to be more like Jesus. That's the promise. He is going to use everything in my life to grow me to be more like Jesus. So just to summarize this, what God is saying, his promise to you, he promises all believers that he will cause all things in our lives to work towards our ultimate good, which is to become more like Jesus. That's what verse 28 means. And I've underlined all things to just drive home the point. When the Greek says all things, it means all things. Everything without exception. That includes not only the big things like choosing who you're going to marry. It also includes the little things like getting a flat on your way to work. God's going to use even that for your good. And it includes not just the good things, but also the really painful things. Like flunking a test or your parents getting divorced or finding out that you have cancer or losing your job. God will use even tragic, horrible things in your life for your ultimate good to grow you to be more like Christ. Now, we need to clarify. God is not the cause of those bad things. Look carefully at verse 28. God doesn't cause bad things. God doesn't cause any evil. He doesn't cause any sin. What is the cause of sin and evil? It's our choice. Way back, long, long time ago, when Adam took the apple. That's why there's sin. That's why there's evil in the world. God's not the cause of it. The promise of verse 28 is not that God causes everything in your life, but that he uses everything for your ultimate good. That's what Paul is saying. Everything that happens in your life, God will move and orchestrate and use to bring about your growth into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That includes not just bad stuff that happens to you, but also bad stuff you do. Even when I sin, even when I sin, God uses that. Now, when I sin, that has bad consequences. God is never pleased with our sin. If I choose to sin, God is very disappointed in that. And it will carry painful consequences in my life. And yet, according to verse 28, sin is not an exception to the promise. There is no exception. So even when I sin, God in his love and wisdom and power, even though he is disappointed, and even though that sin will carry heavy and painful consequences, God is faithful to use that event in my life as part of the process by which he makes me more like his son. There are no exceptions to the rule. If you're a believer, God will use absolutely everything, good, bad, small, easy, in your life to bring about your ultimate good to grow you to be more like Jesus Christ. In other words, God will waste nothing. There's nothing that happens to you that God will let go to waste. He will use it all, everything, to grow you to be more like Jesus Christ. That's an incredible promise from God himself. Uh, Let's talk for a moment about how to apply that. How do you use that promise in your life and in the life of other people? Let me start by telling you what not to do. Do not use this promise to trivialize someone's pain. Verse 20, 28 is, is not a Christian version of the 80s hit, Don't Worry, Be Happy. That, that's not what this verse is about. Don't use this verse to go try to make somebody who is grieving happy. I really would prefer if, if after the service, you didn't come up to me and say, Blake, I, I sure am glad that your eye's not working because man, you need to be made more like Jesus. Well, yes, I did need to be made more like Jesus, but I'm not supposed to be happy about my eye not working. God's not happy about it. That's not how he designed eyes to work. He didn't design them to all of a sudden fail one day. God designed everything to be good and perfect. He is not happy about the pain in your life. He is not happy about sin and evil and brokenness. That's not happy to God. Don't use this as an excuse to try to make someone happy. We're Americans. We want everybody to be happy. We want everyone to laugh with us. So when our friend is in pain, we want to cheer him up. Well, But what does the Bible say? The Bible says weep with those who weep. Share in their grief. Join them in grieving over the fact of sin and pain and tragedy. Join them in their grief. And yet in the midst of their grief, this promise gives hope. That's what this promise is about. It gives hope. Even in the midst of grief and pain and suffering, we can have hope. Because God is saying, even though I grieve with you, I am big enough I'm wise enough, I am strong enough that I'm gonna use even this tragic situation for your ultimate good. I won't let it go to waste. There's nothing bad that happens to you that God will let go to waste. He will move and use and orchestrate all of it to lead you towards conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ so you can have hope in the midst of pain. I encourage you guys to memorize this verse I encourage you to memorize this promise and meditate on it. When you feel fear come upon you, when you feel hopeless, repeat this promise to yourself. Quote verse 28 to yourself. It will give you hope. It will build hope within you, even in the midst of your grief and pain and suffering. That's what this verse is about. It gives you hope. Not only does it give you hope, but I think this verse is God's remedy to worry and fear. So many of us struggle with worry and fear and anxiety. I mean, they're treating millions of people with with medicines for this because it is so ubiquitous. All of us struggle with fear and worry and anxiety. In the midst of that fear and worry and anxiety, verse 28 is God's remedy. Let me give you a couple examples. Students, many of you are rapidly approaching that time in your life when you have to decide what your career is gonna be what you're going to go do after life at A&M. Now, that decision can, can inspire some fear in you, some anxiety, because uh, what if you make the wrong choice? What if you make a bad decision? What if you choose a career that you don't end up liking? Guess what? That happened to me. I chose engineering. I studied mechanical engineering at a and not preaching. Um, So I studied mechanical engineering, fully anticipating that I would be a mechanical engineer. I went and did that for a year and a half, and I hated it. I did not like doing engineering in the real world, and God ended up leading me in a completely different direction. I became an intern here at the church. Now I'm a pastor, and I look back at that time, and the most natural question to ask was, did I waste five years of my life? Not doing engineering now, not doing fluid dynamics anywhere. Did I waste all of that effort? Verse 28 tells me, no, I didn't waste any of that. That was just God's step, God's process in leading me to make me the man he wants me to be. It turns out, interestingly, um, engineering at Texas A&M prepares you really well for seminary. Compared to engineering, seminary is easy. So I go to seminary. It's, it's not nearly as hard for me as it is for other people because engineering taught me the meaning of hard work. It also taught me to think analytically. Turns out that calculus is a really good preparation for biblical Greek. Greek came easy to me because I had been an engineer. Seriously. God used this thing that from a human perspective seems like a mistake as a necessary step in preparing me to be the man he wants me to be. That's the promise God has for you students. Don't worry about what career you're going to pick. Now, pray, seek godly counsel, seek to, to choose the, the answer that God wants, but don't worry about whether you're going to be doing that career in 10 years or not. It doesn't ultimately matter. God's going to use this next step in your life as part of the process of making you the man or woman He wants you to be. I always like telling students it's not the destination that matters, it's the journey. Each step of the way as God leads you and uses everything in your life to shape you into the man or woman he designed you to be. That's what matters, not what career you're in 10 years from now. Another example, parents. Parents, we worry a lot, don't we? We worry about our kids all the time. We worry about, are my kids going to make friends with the right kind of people? Are my kids going to see something or be exposed to something that is going to really be bad for them? Are my kids going to make a really bad decision that has lasting consequences in, in their lives? Are my kids going to do poorly at school? Are they going to fail to get into college? What's going to happen to my kids? We worry about them. And In the midst of that fear and worry, God gives us verse 28. When you feel stress, anxiety, fear setting into your heart over your children, God wants you to go to verse 28. He wants you to remember that he has your kids back. He's watching over them. He has their best interests in mind better than you do. If your child has believed the gospel, then God, Almighty God, the eternal creator, has promised to your child to use everything in his or her life for his or her ultimate good, to make that child more like Jesus Christ. You have no reason to fear. A number of years ago, there was a, a godly, devout woman who had a very wild son. Son running off and immorality and all kinds of things. Um, and at 17, the son decided he was going to leave the small town he grew up in and move to the big city. And the mother worried over that. She knew he was going to the big city for the wrong reasons to seek excitement and fame and pleasure. Um, and so she prayed. She prayed devoutly, passionately God, please keep my son from going to the big city. But he went anyways. He went to the big city uh, and in the big city, sure enough, he gave into all kinds of immorality and all kinds of excess. He ended up fathering a child out of wedlock and his life began to collapse around him and he hit rock bottom. He was absolutely destitute and desperate. And in the moment of his desperate need, he finally turned to God. He finally turned to God in repentance and God led him out of that pit and grew him to become a great teacher. A man of incredible faith, incredible theological mind who could understand scripture better than any of his contemporaries. Turns out you know this guy. Um, his mom was named Monica. His name was Augustine, most famous theologian in the first 600 years of the church. His mom prayed desperately he would stay in the small town, but God had bigger plans. God knew, I can use the bad choice of this boy to lead him and shape him to become the man of God I've designed and chosen him to be. Parents, we don't have to worry God's watching out for our kids better than we are. He knows what's best for them. He'll use even their bad decisions to lead them towards the likeness of Jesus Christ. This promise is meant to free us, to free us from fear and stress and anxiety. That's the first promise of God. The promise is that I'm going to use everything without exception in your life for your ultimate good, that is to make you more like Jesus Christ. Second promise is found in verses 29 and 30. In short, in verses 29 and 30, God promises to you, I am going to finish what I started. I'm going to finish what I started. God uh, lays out for us a number of statements in verses 29 through 30. Um, And and these statements are grammatically linked together so tightly that theologians have have often called for centuries this passage, uh, the golden chain. In the Greek, it's, it's de- definite, it's determinate. If one of these phrases is true about you, they are all true about you. It's not possible to only have one of these and not the rest of them. All of them are true of you, if any of them are true of you. And so let's look at what Paul says here. He starts in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, To foreknow, foreknowledge, what is that? The word can talk about or mean either to know someone ahead of time or to choose someone ahead of time. And when it's used of God in the New Testament, it's always the latter. It's not just that God knew you before you were born, it's that God chose you before you were born. God elected you by uh, by name. As an individual, God chose you. Now, um, this raises that thorny subject of election, Predestination that we wrestle over. Paul actually spends the whole of chapter 9 on election, so I'm going to wait till I get there to try to give you my uh, very limited uh, definition and, and explanation of election. You'll have to wait for a few weeks. For now, what I want you to notice is Paul's purpose in raising the subject of election. He doesn't do it to stir up theological controversy, he does it to inspire confidence. That's true pretty much throughout scripture. Almost every time that God raises the subject of election or predestination, it is not meant to inspire controversy, it is meant to inspire confidence. Security in his people. Because if God foreknew you, if he chose you before you were born, then the next one, the next phrase is true as well. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Predestined. Well, if if to foreknow means to choose someone ahead of time, then predestined means to decide what you're going to do with that person ahead of time. You make a plan for the person that you chose before they ever were born. That's, that's the idea here. Before you were born, God made a plan for your life. And Paul tells us in verse 29, we've already looked at it. What is the plan that God made for your life before you were born? To conform you to the likeness of his son. God decided, I'm going to make that person, that man, that woman into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That was God's plan, his destiny established for you. And actually, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, that plan was made in eternity past, not just before you were born. Paul says, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. Before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He chose you, he predestined you before the foundation of the world, before he created anything. Before time began, God chose you by name and God predestined, he pre-planned for you as an individual that he would make you into the likeness of his son. And because of that choice that God made in eternity past, and because of that plan that God made for you in eternity past, that leads to the next phrase. A phrase that's not about eternity past, it's about your lifetime. Something that happened in your lifetime. Look at verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Again, call, that's God's invitation into his family. That happened at a moment in your life. If you were chosen and predestined, then at some point in your life, God shows up and he invites you into his family. And his invitation is effective. When you get invited, you come in. You respond to the invitation in faith. You can't help but do that. You respond in faith in the moment that you believe. That leads to the next phrase. These whom he called, he also justified. Again, God declared you righteous once and for all. You declared that you are right in his sight. It means that you will spend eternity with God. So because you were chosen by God and because you were predestined by God in eternity past and then called and invited into his family and now justified, made right in his sight, that leads to the final phrase, And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now glorified, that's talking about our resurrection, when our perfected bodies are rejoined to our perfected spirits. That's what's coming, when when we are made right. Now for those of you who are paying attention, you notice there's a little grammar problem here. What tense does Paul use for that verb? He uses past tense, but it hasn't happened yet. Paul says you've been glorified. No, you haven't. We're still in fallen bodies that are decaying and breaking apart. We've not been resurrected. Uh, Paul uses the wrong tense. He, He, grammatically speaking, is in error. Why does Paul do that? Why does he use the wrong grammar here? Well, to drive home the point. In God's eyes, it's as if it's already done. In God's eyes, you are as good as glorified. In God's eyes, it's as good as past tense. You're done. You're resurrected in God's eyes. It is so sure, it is so absolute that Paul uses the past tense. He uses bad grammar to drive home the security of this promise. It's like when my wife, Julie, asked me to do something. And if I know that I can get it done, if I want to, if I want to show her that she can trust me, that she can depend upon me, then I'll simply say to her, done. Now, technically speaking, no, it's not. It's not done, I gotta go do it now. But by using the word done, I am saying to her, you can count on me. It is as good as done. I'm good for it. God's doing the same thing. God is using bad grammar to say to you, it is as good as done. You can absolutely count on me. It is going to happen. There is no person who has been justified who will not be glorified. It is so secure and so guaranteed. I'm going to use bad grammar to show you. That's the idea here. God speaking through Paul uses the wrong grammar to drive home to you your eternal security. That's what we call this promise, eternal security. Your salvation is secure. If you have been justified, which you know you've been justified if you have believed. If you've believed the gospel at some point in your life, that is proof positive that you have been justified. If you have been justified, you will absolutely be glorified. There's no person who has ever been justified who will not in the future be glorified because salvation is secure. Once saved, always saved. That's a biblical absolute. That is absolutely clear in scripture. If you have been saved, God is going to finish the job. That's the point here. If God has begun the work in you, if he has already justified you, you can count on him to finish it, to finish what he started. And the logic really goes back to the beginning of the chain. Think about it. What is Paul saying by foreknew and predestined? What he's saying is that in eternity past, already knowing everything about you, everything you would do that was good and everything you would do that was bad, God freely made the choice to choose you as an individual and to predestine you for salvation. He already made that choice knowing everything about you. So if at some point in the future I commit some huge sin, I do something really bad. Guess what? It won't have caught God by surprise. He knew it. He knew it from eternity past. And yet he already chose me. He already settled the matter. He already made up his mind about me. That's true for you as well. It's really good news. There will never come a day in your life when you will do something so bad, so evil that God will press the abort button. Never gonna happen. There is no abort button on your salvation. God chose you individually by name, knowing everything you would ever do. He made that choice in eternity past. He is finished. He's going to finish what he started. You are absolutely eternally secure. God has made up his mind about you and his decision is to glorify you, to make you like Jesus, to save you for all eternity. Your salvation is absolutely secure. Okay, so let's summarize this. Let's draw this together. If you are looking for security in the things of this world, you're never going to find it. You need security. God designed us to crave security. We cannot live healthy lives without feeling safe and secure. But if you are looking to meet that need for security in the things of this world, you will never find it. This world cannot give you security. Only the promises of God can. And he has promised to you that he will use everything, good and bad, big and small, everything for your ultimate good. To move you and make you, shape you and mold you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And he has promised that he will finish what he started. That he will finish your salvation. You will not be lost. You will be glorified. You will spend eternity with God that is absolute and guaranteed certain. That's the promises that God has for all who have believed. Now, if you're here this morning and you wonder, are these promises true of me? Simple way to find out. If you want to know if these promises from God apply to you, you simply have to ask yourself, have I trusted in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? At some point in my life, did I choose to believe that Jesus really did die for all of my sins to pay the full price of all the bad things I've done and then rise from the dead? to give me eternal life. Did I believe that? Did I trust in Jesus alone for eternal life? Now, if you haven't, if you're just not there yet, if it's too hard to believe all this stuff about Jesus, a guy you can't see, or maybe it's just too hard to believe that God offers eternal life as a free gift, you feel like, I I gotta at least do something. I gotta work for it somehow. If there's something keeping you back from believing the good news of the gospel, these promises don't yet apply to you. Let, let me encourage you, come talk to me or someone else here this morning. There's nothing more important that you will ever think about and consider than what Jesus has done for you, the good news of the gospel. But for every one of you who have made that decision to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life, you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, these promises are yours. They are irrevocably yours. They belong to you. You can bank on them. These are absolute They're yours every day for the rest of eternity. They're yours. So let me encourage you, memorize what's yours. That's really where I want to leave you. As you guys get ready to head out on spring break, very simple application this morning. You need to know what's yours need to have these promises deep in your mind and in your heart so that when fear and worry and doubt and anxiety creep in, you can quote these promises to yourself. God doesn't want you living in fear and anxiety. He wants you living in security and safety. So memorize these verses, verses 28 through 30. Memorize them and then you can quote them to yourself to build confidence and hope and dispel fear and worry. Now, I think it would be, really anemic to end this service just with my words, So I've asked Colin to come back up, the band to come back up. I feel like we got to respond to these promises with one last song of worship. We got to turn to the Lord and thank him for these truths. As they come up, let me go ahead and pray for us. And then Colin's going to lead us in a response of worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these promises. We thank you that not only did you send your son to die for us, not only did you raise him from the dead to set us free from sin and death, but Father, you have given us these incredible promises so that we might have safety and security in life. Thank you so, so much that you have committed yourself. You have promised to use everything in our lives for our ultimate good. Even the bad stuff that we do in your love and your sovereignty and wisdom, you will move that. And use that to grow us to be more like Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. And thank you that you have promised to finish what you started. That there is nothing that can cost us our salvation. We are absolutely secure in your arms. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you that you knew us and chose us before time began. Thank you that that guarantees that in the future you will glorify us. So that we can be with you for all eternity. Thank you for the security, the absolute safety we have in you. In the name of your son we pray, amen.